0: The following Taisho by Shinge Roshi Rokosheri Shayat was recorded at the Zen Center of Syracuse Hoenji in Syracuse, New York. These recordings are offered for free. We welcome your financial support. To contribute and for further information, please visit www.zencenterofsyracuse.org. Thank you. Good morning. morning. Last time I spoke to you, um, I quoted some of the essays in the book Dharma, Color, and Culture, New Voices in Western Buddhism. And I wanted to... continue with this book, reading today from a few excerpts, um, a few excerpts from an essay by Viveka Chen. She is a uh, Chinese-American Zen teacher who's part of the Western Buddhist order and teaches in at San Francisco Zen Center. And what I have been focusing on with you, and will continue to focus on for the rest of my life, is the Four Noble Truths. We can never really investigate the Four Noble Truths deeply enough. So it always reveals something new every time we look at these truths taught by Shakyamuni Buddha in his first sermon, after he awakened, after he became the Buddha. So all of you know what those four noble truths are, right? So this is your chance to have your oral exam. First noble truth, Yoshin. There, there is suffering, the noble truth of suffering. second noble truth. Jikyo. Suffering has a cause. greed, anger, and ignorance. Mm, We can look at suffering. We can see how it arises. We can notice how our craving and wish to avoid suffering intensify and prolong our suffering right third noble truth yosei yeah, right. who would like to help yosei what is the third noble truth yes cessation cessation This round of grabbing for what we feel we lack and pushing away, avoiding what we don't want, that continually creates new suffering, can stop. And as I often say, another way of speaking of the third noble truth is, sit down and shut. This sitting down and shutting up, if we really do it, this is what the Buddha did. This is how he became the Buddha. Siddhartha Gautama sat down vowing that he would not get up again until he had broken through the endless round of samsara, the three poisons the way in which we are led around like a bull with a ring in the nose by our various kinds of compensatory habits, which can be boiled down to craving and aversion. And the fourth noble truth, Dagon, the Eightfold Path, which I will go into next time we meet this way. So today, Viveka Chen talks about the Third Noble Truth, the cessation of suffering, by looking at the Second Noble Truth. She says, there are many kinds of suffering. The kind that we can liberate ourselves from is self-created suffering. So she uh, clarifies that in another paragraph by saying, of course, everything that happens to us is not a direct result of our karma. An earthquake can simply be the plates of the earth moving regardless of anyone's state of mind. The suffering of racism, sexism, homophobia, and other oppressions arises out of complex historical and socioeconomic conditions. There is most definitely suffering that is not self-created. But then, let's look at the kind we can liberate ourselves from. Self created suffering is caused at the roots, she says, by the contraction and isolation of our hearts. Have you noticed how your heart can contract and what causes it to do that? What causes the isolation? Moment by moment, she says, we form and feel different habitual patterns that either make us feel more alone or more connected with the world and all life. This is the process of karma, which shapes the course of our lives. Buddhism is concerned with helping us recognize and reinforce the tendency towards Openness and interconnection. This is how the heart is liberated. This is how we awaken. We can notice in ourselves that we do have this tendency to have openness instead of contraction of the heart. Each one of us has this possibility, but perhaps it isn't cultivated strongly enough. And so we go with what our patterns have led us to believe is the reality of our lives, which is contraction and isolation. Why? You said you had a question, but how about an answer? Why? Why do we contract and isolate? Hmm? One of the reasons would be so we don't get hurt. So we don't get hurt. We think we might get hurt. And going back to this essay, she says, from these contracted states, we build a wall around the self to define and protect me and mine as a misguided means of seeking security. Misguided? Why? Will we ever find security that way? We'll find isolation. Is that what you want? It works for a little while, but it has severe side effects. What are some of the side effects of that misguided means of seeking security? Loneliness. 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 Big one, right? What else? Fear. 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 Fear kind of prompts the whole process. And then a side effect of securely erecting those boundaries is loneliness, definitely. What else? Yes? Loss in the meaning of your life. Pardon? Loss of meaning. Loss of meaning for your life. Feeling as though there's no reason to get up in the morning. Hopelessness. Hopelessness, or another very common way of describing it is depression, very much so. And then anger comes, right? Because you feel as though you should have something more, some meaning, and somehow, what happened? And it must be someone else's fault. Yeah. So she then says, Whenever we create a self to cling to, we also create others. It goes along, right? to protect ourselves from, or as objects from whom to get our needs met. This is another very important statement. We think self, secure wall, others who might hurt us, or others we need, grapple. And all of this is based on what? What is our understanding of this self that we have created? What do we feel about this self? It's going to last forever. I mean, it's an isolated thing. It certainly has that uh, ignorant attitude, forgetting that everything is impermanent. Right. But what about the nature of our view of ourselves? What, it, what do we feel deep down about ourselves? When we are protecting and building a wall and have this misguided view of needing security, why do we do that? We feel that we're real, our is real. That's what she's saying. But why? Why do we have this erection of what we hope is the reality of a self an ego entity, a self identity? Why do we have to put so much effort? into protecting and into grabbing something because what? We're ignorant. Huh? We're ignorant. We're ignorant. Yeah, we are. We, we certainly are ignorant. Yes, what else? Huh? We doubt. It. Huh? <clears throat> we, doubt we doubt. We doubt this very body is the body of the Buddha. Right? We doubt. We feel what? Do we feel we have it? What do we feel? Loss. How about the word lack? Mm-hmm. All right, we have this sense of lack. We have this feeling that we need to fill this lack. This is a very important aspect of looking at the root of suffering. It's, it's negativity. Yeah, we have a sense of negativity about our own uh, beautiful being. Yeah, this great lack. yeah i i found um in this issue of tricycle uh, there was an interview with um a guy whose whose uh phrase i use so often and i didn't remember who said it, but then they interviewed this um pioneer, they call him a pioneer in illuminating the relationship between Western psychotherapy and Buddhist practice. Yeah, His name is John Wellwood. And many people have picked up the phrase that I use so often, which is spiritual bypassing. It's used by many uh, psychotherapists who are uh, also Dharma teachers, like uh, Mark Epstein, many, many people. And so he coined that, at least, you know, we think he's the originator of that uh, phrase back in the, uh, about eight, 30 years ago. So they're interviewing him here. And he talks about spiritual bypassing when we use the goal of awakening or liberation to try to rise above the raw and messy side of our humanness, before we have fully faced and made peace with it, when we feel this deep lack or this deep negativity, we may uh, we may turn to our spiritual practice as a way of filling that lack, of using using our practice as a way of avoiding working on those issues. This is very important, because if we do that, he says, we, uh, we may also use our notion of absolute truth to disparage or dismiss relative human needs, feelings, psychological problems, relational difficulties, and developmental deficits. One might, for example, try to practice non-attachment. All right, so we look at the second noble truth and we think, okay, I'm going to rise above my craving. I'm going to rise above my attachment to a relationship or a thing or whatever uh, my addictions are, and use my spiritual practice as a kind of transcendence, spiritual bypassing. One might, for example, he says, try to practice non-attachment by dismissing one's need for love. But this only drives the need underground, where it is likely to become acted out in covert, unconscious, and possibly harmful ways. We see this all the time. It's in relationships, he says, that our unresolved psychological issues show up most intensely. That's because psychological wounds are always relational. The core psychological wound so prevalent in the modern world forms out of not feeling loved or intrinsically lovable, as we are. Many people, I think, feel this way, that they're only entitled to love if they change, if they become better human beings, if they meet someone's expectations. Maybe not you all, but I think it's very common that we find the addictive cycle is actually created by this deep feeling, this deep wound, that you're not good enough. And that comes from what he calls inadequate love or attunement in our developing years. He calls it the relational wound or the wound of the heart. Galak Rinpoche talks about attachment in his book, Good Life, Good Death. And, you know, this way of not even, we don't even see how we're attaching as a way of compensating for this relational wound. we need something, right? need a person to be something for us, to do something for us. And it's a tricky... uh, Attachment is a tricky thing because it's so subtle. It's so subtle we don't even notice it most of the time. Gelig Rinpoche says, The way... Attachment functions within the individual is very different from anger. Anger possesses you. It's hot. You feel it. You can see it coming most of the time. (laughs) Sometimes it takes over before you even notice. But attachment, Gellic Rinpoche says, is cool, soft. It's like dipping paper in oil. When the paper touches the oil, though you barely dip a corner of it, a large amount of oil is quickly absorbed and it's extremely hard to wash out. Likewise, attachment is pervasive. It comes unexpectedly, takes over our entire body, mind, and even speech. He tells a story about an old monk in Tibet in the 1700s who was very attached to the butter used in Tibetan butter tea. He liked to collect it, to reuse it. That recycled butter is called za. He fell ill but still managed to go to the monastery every day for the morning gathering when butter tea was served. Soon he could no longer carry his cup, so he put a ladle in a bag and hung the bag around his neck. When he could no longer walk by himself, he had two young monks hold him up so he could go and collect his butter. He was so ill, everyone wondered why he hadn't already died. A famous spiritual master of the time, Gungtang Jampelyang, heard the story and, since he happened to know the monk, decided to go and see him. How are you feeling? Jampel Yang asked the old monk. Well, I am sick he replied, but I haven't missed a single morning meeting. I like the tea so much. <laughs> oh, that's good, said Gung Tang And did you collect a lot of cha?" Ja? The monk said, yes, I have. Then Gung Tang Yang said, you know, I've heard that in the pure land of Tushita, that means after you depart, the butter is far better than ours. <laughs> and they give you much more of it, too. <laughs> the monk said, Are you quite sure? Gung Jeonphil Yang said, Yes, my teachers told me so. The old monk said, Well, since it comes from you, it must be true. And he died two, year, two days later very peacefully. So we may not think it's a good thing to die, right? But when this time comes, we have to let go of the attachment to this body. That's our fundamental attachment, right? Even though we may say, oh, I am ready when the time comes. It's quite rare to find that someone is ready. Right, Gyoshin? Gyoshin works with people who are dying in the hospital as a chaplain. And I don't know if you have experienced, it is rare, but it does happen, when someone is really ready. My mother kept saying to her wonderful doctor, Is this it? I'm ready if this is it. Is this it? And she, you could just tell, she wanted to hear it. No, not yet. Is this it? So finally he said, You know, he was a wonderful guy, Peruvian, very deeply, you could tell, very deeply religious in his way. They said, You know. Only God knows. But I think soon. I was so compassionate, not trying to give her any false hope, but not trying to say, I give you about 20 hours. That was really beautiful. Gellick Rinpoche also says, when you see, quote, I, the most precious one, end quote, because that's, after all, why we can't die, right? I, the most precious one, creates all of our suffering. Thinking, I, this separated, this person we have to defend no matter what, right? I, as opposed to others, I who must create this wall of security. It's odd, isn't it, when we don't really feel this uh, deep, hmm, what Wellwood calls, you know, this attunement, when we don't really feel that we're lovable enough, we have to somehow compensate for that by saying, I, the most precious one. The less we feel trust that we are lovable, the more we have to project this I, the most precious one. Defend I, the most precious one. So he says, when you see I, the most precious one, for what it is, which is what? Yeah, an illusion, a projection, something we've created to feel that we are lovable, that we have to protect. That, he says, when we see it for what it is, that it has no permanent or separate identity. That is the beginning of developing wisdom. So we sit here, and this is what we're doing. We're developing wisdom. Sometimes deep experience happens. Sometimes simply sitting after sitting, developing wisdom, developing wisdom. You can't see it. You can't point to it. You certainly can't say anything about it, but it then he says when you really understand and experience the interdependence of all things the nature of reality that is wisdom deep sitting session, long sitting we come to feel this right we really feel it it isn't a theory it's not an intellectual uh, proposition right Just feel it. This happens. Therefore, this happens. That occurs. Therefore, this occurs. This person feels miserable. Therefore, I understand what it is to suffer. My understanding. Therefore, this person feels less miserable. Connectedness. All connected. But is that Enough, he asks, to achieve the goal of total freedom from suffering. What do you think? Hmm? No, you're right. Probably not, he says. The negativity has to be replaced by positivity. Anger has to be replaced by pure patience or understanding. Attachment has to be replaced by pure love. Jealousy needs to be replaced by care, love, and affection. So when we give up ego, what do we replace it with? Yeah, all those are perfect. He says, when we exchange, I, the most precious one, for seeing others as most precious. Therefore, love, compassion, gratitude. Yes. And going back to Viveka Chen's essay, She says, when we act from unafflicted states of mind, what he was calling positivity, we create a momentum towards freedom from suffering. You probably can feel this in your sitting. There's a feeling of some momentum that you you have this really pure desire not to keep getting caught up in all those old habits and not to cling, and not to create the self versus others. A momentum towards freedom from suffering, she says, and we start to dissolve the, the protective, isolating walls we've built up from past habit. A freedom arises in each moment that we let go of the preoccupation of circling the wagons around me and mine. Isn't that a wonderful statement? Freedom arises in each moment. Notice this. Each moment. What is sitting? What is zazen? So each moment, here, not there. each moment, a freedom arises. It's not that we do zazen long enough so that eventually we will come to this freedom, but that the freedom is in this moment. Right here, we can experience it and actualize it. Some of you have attended Dharma study for many years, And may remember that before we began the book of Rinzai, which we're reading now, we read his teacher's book, Obaku, Wangpo's book on the nature, the nature of mind. And he said over and over again, this is not some kind of ladder that we climb. It's not a progression toward some eventual freedom. It's each moment right here. We must wake up to it right here. And how do we do that? Do we think, okay, I'm sitting in Zazen, I am waking up to this moment? No, that doesn't seem to work, does it? <laughs> and none of us feels lovable enough to really believe it anyway. If we did, great. you know, Like... really miraculous statement made by Jika's little nephew, Aya Buddha! <laughs> and he only lived a year after that. Aya Buddha! He knew he didn't need to go through the next 80 or so years. Sometimes we think that's terrible. And in a way, like we all say, losing Morgan, It is terrible in another way. It's done. Ayya Buddha. Morgan didn't even have the words to say it, but we knew, right? "Aya Buddha, this very moment, this very place, not stuck, So we have this momentum towards freedom. We have started to dissolve the protective, isolating walls we've built up from past habit. How do we do it? We can't think it. How do we do it? Letting go. How? Breathe. Each breath, right? <laughs> Letting go. How many of you have tried to hold on to your breath? Really hold on. I mean literal exercise. It's a very instructive thing. You can do it right now. Let's all take a breath and not let it go. Okay, what starts happening? It hurts. Huh? <laughs> it hurts. You can feel the sort of tension. building. In the tension. Uh, anyone else? What did you notice? You feel caught. Caught. Tension. Caught. What else? Desire to breathe. <laughs> Great. Yeah. I need a breath. What else? Relief when you finally do get that breath. (laughs) Well, you know, you have the breath. That's the lesson that we were just examining. You have it. You are holding that breath. Your body is processing it and changing it. And so how are you feeling as you continue holding on to that breath? You can't take another breath yet. So a desire to breathe... You can't breathe any more than you already have taken in, right? What do you have to do? You have to exhale. You have to let go. What's the feeling, the emotion that goes along with that as you are sitting there not having let go of that in-breath? Fear. You start feeling kind of shaky, right? And we never examine this, so it's very instructive, because this is the way we walk around. Not literally holding our breaths, but we're walking around that, you know, caught up in what we feel we have to have more of to alleviate the sense of lack, the sense of loss, the sense of, I'm not good enough, I don't have this attunement, or whatever. You can put it in your own words, but it's very powerful when we allow ourselves to feel it with the body in this very basic way of taking a breath and not letting it go. So letting go, (sighs) very wonderful, only by letting it go can we, what? Take right. only way that we find this freedom. The freedom to breathe without grabbiness. The freedom to receive rather than to project our needs onto others. It's quite a different way of relating, isn't it? To openly receive the next breath is so different from saying, give me, and I'm going to keep it. That's kind of a leitmotif of our lives. So when we look at it physically, we can see the freedom that arises in each moment that we let go of the preoccupation of circling the wagons around me and mine. And she says, the fact that we are the cause of much of our suffering when honestly confronted may bring up grief or shame, but it is also a joyful recognition. Why? Because you can learn from it and try to change it. Yeah, exactly. Since we create suffering, we can also stop creating it. This is the key to the cessation of suffering, third noble truth, to realize that it's not put on us by others, right? Nobody is telling us, you have to keep doing your habitual round of suffering. You must. No one is saying, I condemn you to live only in your own round of habitual patterns and seemingly unshakable beliefs. So when you see that, oh, no one else? Oh, I'm the cause? If I'm the cause, I can do something. I can exhale. Remember sometimes some years ago there was that, was it a play or a book, Waiting to Exhale? Hmm? Anybody? A movie and a book. Both? Always they make a movie out of a book, yeah. Waiting to Exhale. We are waiting to exhale. And no one is keeping us from doing so. This, uh, she says here, We benefit in any moment we refrain from taking a path that creates more suffering. We can refrain at any moment. This is the freedom in every moment. We can see into it. Discernment comes from sitting. We have to really sit deeply so that we can discern that we are creating our own suffering. Sometimes, she says, that benefit doesn't register right away, but it is there, like a chokehold releasing its grasp, choice by choice, action by action. And we all experienced that just a few minutes ago, that chokehold, and how it releases its grasp just through our exhalation, just through our recognition of, whatever the relational wounds may be that we have been suffering from without any understanding that that's what's been happening. Going back to John Wellwood's interview in Tricycle, he says, many of us originally turned to the dharma at least in part, as a way of trying to overcome the pain of our psychological and relational wounding. I think this is probably true for many people. They come to spiritual practice, whatever it is, whether it's Zen or Vipassana or Vajrayana Buddhism or some other spiritual practice, because they feel there must be a way to heal from this deep wound. Then he says, yet we are often in denial about or unconscious of the nature or extent of this wounding. As a result, being a good spiritual practitioner can become a compensatory identity that covers up and defends against an underlying deficient identity where we feel bad about ourselves not good enough, or basically lacking. Then, although we may be practicing diligently, our spiritual practice can be used in the service of denial and defense. This is a very important point to keep in mind. Are we using our spiritual practice in the service of denial and defense? And when he says, when spiritual practice is used to bypass our real life human issues, it becomes compartmentalized in a separate zone of our life that remains unintegrated with our overall functioning. We see this all the time. Compartmentalized. Someone may have deep understanding. And you may say, well, how can that deep understanding not pervade the entire being of that person? so that no harm is caused. Well, just take away how can. Everybody, very few people, can get through life unscathed by various kinds of wounds. And they may not be taught how to investigate and begin the process of healing so that this... Unintegrated, separate zone of spiritual attainment becomes just taken for granted. I think it depends on the practitioner's sort of intention. Intention, intention. Intention. That's right. uh, Meditators like they just want to sort of want to calm their mind. That's right. Absolutely. That's exactly what he's saying. Your intention is so crucial. If you're coming to spiritual practice just to calm your mind, just to feel better for a little while, of course it's not really going to penetrate deeply into your human functioning. But even people who have deep intention to awaken, to become a Buddha, may, because of these un... What shall we say... um, these wounds that are not attended to, they may not see they are psychologically <clears throat> wounded. They may not realize. But some of the meditators they try to sort of like understand and like try to incorporate in their life, mm. and that is when like they don't have two different things anymore. They can. Yeah. all that's the idea. We must integrate this, but we have to see it before we can integrate it. So I think this is the point of John Wellwood's teaching in this essay, in this interview. He says, we are not just humans learning to become Buddhas. That's one aspect of our practice, right? We are humans learning to become Buddhas or seeing moment by moment how Buddha nature arises and trusting in that, that's one aspect. But also, he says, we are Buddhas waking up in human form, learning to become fully human. These two tracks of development can mutually enrich each other. Even though Personal feelings and needs, what we might call the samsaric round, may have no solid or ultimate reality. You know, we'd love to say, oh, there's no real self. The self has no reality. And yes, and yet, and yet. He says, even though personal feelings and needs may have no solid or ultimate reality, Shunting them aside is likely to cause major psychological problems. How many of you have discovered this to be the case? Shunting them aside. Uh Uh-huh. My feelings and needs don't have any solidity. They don't really exist. They're just a kind of mirage. They're just clouds passing over the full moon. I know there's a full moon. I don't have to deal with those clouds. Uh Uh-huh major psychological problems. The great paradox of being both human and Buddha, he says, is that we are both dependent and not dependent. Part of us is completely dependent on people for everything. Food, clothing, love, connectedness, inspiration, help with our development. Though our Buddha nature is not dependent, that's absolute truth, our human embodiment is, that's relative truth, and they're not separate. Some of you know the naturalist John Muir? Yes, he wrote, when we try to pick out anything by itself, we find that it is bound fast by a thousand invisible cords that cannot be broken to everything in the universe. And so in this way, we are interconnected, we are interwoven, and our Buddha nature and our human nature are not separate. Absolute and relative are not two, right? I think there's one other thing I wanted to share with you in this, if I can find this page. Yeah. So so the interviewer in uh, in Tricycle Magazine asks John Wellwood, what are the consequences of dismissing how you feel? I think all of us know, we've already experienced the consequences of dismissing our human nature, how we feel. He says, from my perspective as an existential psychologist, feeling is a form of intelligence. It's the body's direct, holistic, intuitive way of knowing and responding, which is highly attuned and intelligent. Unlike emotionality, which is a reactivity that sweeps you away, Gelik Rinpoche once said, Emotions are untrustworthy. Emotionality. Is reactivity that sweeps you away. He doesn't mean sweeps you, this construct of the self, away. He means it sweeps everything. You become, you get caught in the grips, right? Feeling helps you go within and connect with where you are. This is something we rarely want to do to trust feeling, the intelligence of feeling. Emotional intelligence, sometimes they use that description, right? We all have it in this feeling way, not the emotionality way. We have the ability to feel what's going on, and what we do instead, spiritual bypassing. And then he he says, unfortunately, traditional Buddhism doesn't make a clear distinction between feeling and emotion, so they both often tend to be lumped together as something egoic to overcome. Something egoic to overcome. I'll end with a quote that he ends with from the late Zogchen master Chagdud Tulku, who said people often ask me do lamas have attachments? I don't know how other lamas might answer this but I must say yes. I recognize that my students my family my country have no inherent reality and yet I remain deeply attached to them. I recognize that my attachment has no inherent reality. And yet, I cannot deny the experience of it. The feeling, right? The feeling. Knowing the empty nature of attachment, I know my motivation to benefit sentient beings must supersede it. And then we get back to what Nathan said, intention. This is crucial. This is our vow. Knowing the empty nature of attachment, I know my motivation to benefit sentient beings must supersede it. Who are we? How are we? What do we do? What is our following the Eightfold Path, after all? But knowing the empty nature of attachment and, at the same time, my motivation or intention to benefit sentient beings. This is our vow, right? So we will end with the great vows for all.